the tubing, you mean? Yeah, the tubing. There is a technical term for the tubing, but <laughs> I think I've just had a stroke. Um, so we'll connect the uh, the catheters to a uh, a tubing that goes from two to one. So it's like, think, think of the capital letter Y <laughs> creates. Yeah. So, so you can infuse via one pump into two catheters. I think we'll cut that, Roger. I think we'll leave it in. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we can cut it if you want. Um, Welcome to episode 39 of the Obs and Gyne Crit Care Podcast. Hi everyone, this week um, I have another podcast and this time I finally managed to get uh, Dr. Matt Rucklish to come and talk to us and uh, I'm going to interview him and we're going to talk about all things to do with rectus sheath catheters. Um, so thanks for coming along Matt. Uh, pleasure Roger. Um, so I think, I uh, hope a lot of listeners will probably know who you are, but, um, perhaps maybe, uh, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but in three or four sentences, could you perhaps <laughs> give us a brief summary of who you are and where you're from and, uh, why, why you're interested in this topic? <laughs> where do we start? Birth? Um, so yeah, my name's, <laughs> my name's, uh, Matt. I'm a consultant anaesthetist in Perth, Western Australia, uh, trained in the United Kingdom in London, um, research fellowship in Perth, um, had a job down in the southwest of England in a department called the Royal Devon Nexter Hospital, I guess mostly known here in Australia for the um, and around the world for the home of the Oxford Handbook of Anesthesia, um, and then more recently working in Perth, WA. And I guess my interests are obstetric anesthesia, perioperative medicine, and enhanced recovery after surgery and really sort of maximizing or rather optimizing pain relief after major surgery. Uh, thanks, Matt. And so um, specifically, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the development of the rectus sheath catheter just sort of, sort of as an overview in the south of England where you were working because I think that's um, how you came about uh, becoming really interested in this uh, mode of analgesia. Absolutely. I've got to give a big shout out to my colleagues uh, back in Exeter because they are probably the pioneers of rectus sheath catheter analgesia um, in in this area. Um, They've been using rectus sheath catheters for many, many years and they've really sort of promoted its use there and its course on around the world. And uh, in in partly because of um, their um, promotion of it. Uh, so I got an interest in it there, and we've introduced it in the department here. And I understand that it's now being used in many parts of, of many hospitals around the world. Okay, and now I uh, just thought we'd take a little step backwards as well. So um, before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of rectus sheath catheters, um, maybe maybe just for the perhaps a non-anesthetic audience there. Uh, Briefly explain the philosophy uh, why we would want to use a regional or local anaesthetic based technique like this uh, for analgesia after major sort of abdominal surgery and, and you know, why are we trying to avoid opioids. I know we've done a few podcasts and all this sort of stuff already, uh, but maybe a, a brief review of that um, is useful because it is a bit of a hassle. Why don't we just give everyone lots of um, morphine or hydromorphone uh, in, instead of uh, you know put it, spending, uh, spending a lot of time on all these um, techniques? 
Yes, yeah, so the opioid epidemic is a big talking point at the moment. And I, th- I guess that's just one element of why we do this. Uh, the other thing is to think about local anaesthetics. And I was thinking this morning how they are probably the most versatile drug we have in our practice now. We can, we can pretty much put them in any area of the body. We can use them topically in the eyes. We can use them in the neuraxis, repertoires and spinals, so local anaesthetic uh, around peripheral nerves. Um, so and also intravenously now as well. Yeah. So um, amazingly versatile agents uh, with relatively limited side effects. So for almost all operations, we should be using some sort of local anaesthetic technique, even if that's just some skin infiltration. Uh, for laparotomy, uh, certainly midline laparotomy, it is associated with uh, significant pain. Uh, so obviously we'll use a multimodal approach to analgesia, and local anaesthesia is one element to that in terms of reducing uh, the use of opioids which not only have the risk of addiction and diversion all the other things we're hearing about but we just know they've got some well-known adverse side effects which are best avoided yep and i guess just to clarify that um i guess local anesthetics if used in the right dose don't have any major side effects but uh, uh we did do an episode with um Chris McGrath on local anaesthetic toxicity, so we do have to have a little bit of um, care involved in the dosing. Um, right, let's get into it. So do you want to tell us in simple terms what rectus sheath catheters are? Sure. So <laughs> imagine an epidural catheter, <laughs> yep. if you will, um, and imagine your rectus muscle. Now, we all have rectus muscles. Um, some are more prominent than others. Uh, Roger? Can I just clarify this? Because I have heard someone, uh, some people, including Dr. Creel, talk about the rectal sheath catheter. So this is actually a rectus sheath. Yeah, rectus, yeah, commonly um, yeah, mixed up. I'm not sure how well that would work. Um, so we all have uh, rectus muscles, and the rectus muscle uh, runs from essentially your rib cage down to your pubis, um, one on each side of the midline of your body. And um, the nerve supply to the abdominal wall essentially comes from your lower thoracic nerves which come out of your spinal cord and they wrap around your abdomen between different muscle uh, layers of your abdominal wall and as they get towards the midline they pierce the uh, uh, the sheath the posterior sheath that wraps around the rectus muscle they penetrate through the rectus muscle through the uh, anterior sheath of the rectus muscle and then out through the skin and they Uh, innovate the skin around the midline of the abdominal wall so if you can put local anesthetic um, behind the rectus muscle or posterior to the rectus muscle you're going to be able to deposit in that sheath and you'll be able to block the terminal branches of the spinal nerves as they penetrate the uh, rectus muscle and supply the skin of the abdominal wall and um it, that was I'll pretty put you on the spot there because it's quite hard to describe anatomy uh, verbally, isn't it? So there's a really great article which I should, probably should have mentioned at the start here that you and uh, one of our fellows, Liz Beattie, um, did for the BJA Education, uh, which is open access, I think, and is free, so you don't have to go into Sci-Hub and um, do anything illegal to, to, to get this. Uh, uh, and that's got some great diagrams, and uh, so it's probably easier to um, see the anatomy in a, in a visual form. Um, so we'll put a link to that on the... Um, uh, on the post page, on the blog page. Um, so obviously, so getting local anaesthetic into that spa- into the space is the way to sort of get uh, good analgesia from the incision from a midline laparotomy. So do you want to um, 
go through the different ways that we can um, we can do this. So I think you can have single shots, and you can have surgeons or anaesthetists put them in. Um, do you want to um, perhaps uh, explain uh, the pros and cons of the different approaches and the learning curve and how? Yeah, ins and outs of that. Yeah, sure. Well, I think the first thing to think about is which operations are these uh, blocks going to be useful for. So that's where you do need to understand the anatomy a little bit. And we're talking here about midline and uh, paramedian laparotomy. Yeah. So uh, these blocks probably aren't ideal for laparotomy off the midline. So sort of incisions you might make for a gallbladder, open gallbladder, kidney, um, fan and steel incisions. There are other abdominal wall blocks which may be better for those. So we're talking here predominantly about midline laparotomy. Um, and there are a number of ways that you can um, provide the blocks. Now you can provide the blocks with a blind technique and that's I guess how many of us were taught, just uh, sticking a blunted needle in and feeling where you were. Um, obviously we're never entirely sure exactly where we were, were. <laughs> but um, they seem to work anyway and some of the earliest descriptions of rectus sheath blocks were from um, the blinded um, pop technique as it was described. Um, Essentially, now we're using either ultrasound uh, to put them in, or we're putting them in under direct approaches, typically by the surgeons. And there are pros and cons uh, regarding those, which we can discuss. Yep. So, um, so there's a bit of a learning curve to put them in. Uh, so I know uh, a lot of anaesthetists will be quite familiar with doing various blocks and uh, getting using ultrasound for ver- vascular access. What do you think is the sort of standard learning curve for people, say, for example, who are anaesthetists learning how to put them in using ultrasound? And uh, what about um, how easy is it for surgeons to learn how to do this, uh, do, do, doing the sort of direct approach where they do it under direct vision? Uh, well, from, from uh, an anaesthetic ultrasound perspective, I'd say this is a, a, a pretty straightforward block to do. Um, and certainly I can only speak from my own personal experience, but I find it easier than doing other abdominal wall blocks like tap blocks, partly because we're only looking at one muscle. Yep. Um, and, you know, any, any of you out there with an ultrasound machine can uh, put the probe on your own rectus muscle. And um, it, it's, it's a pretty easy thing to visualize. And you can even see the bits that make you have a six pack. Well, technically, it should be an eight-pack. We actually look at the, the the anatomy. These are little tenderness intersections that travel transversely across this long rectus muscle, and you'll be able to identify those in ultrasound. But essentially, it looks like a big muscle surrounded by a sheath. So it's actually very easy to visualize on ultrasound. Obviously, some patients have a bigger one than others. Um, and... <laughs> um, uh, but it's a pretty straightforward um, thing to visualize. Uh, so were you looking at me then uh, when you when you made that comment? <laughs> so it depends on how many uh, planks you do every day, or uh, perhaps what, or perhaps what's underneath and stretching it to make it a bit thinner than it should be. Um, so um, talk a little bit more about the technique. Of- yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a good idea. I think we should talk about the technique and how accurate do you think the placement needs to be? Because I know that sometimes the catheters are not exactly in the right plane, but in my uh, humble opinion, it seems to still provide analgesia. What, uh, have you got any comments? You're actually asking quite a lot of this block because um, depending on the size of the incision, the local anaesthetic does have to uh, spread to a, um, a reasonable extent. And we'll talk a little bit later about volumes and types of local anaesthetic that we would use. Uh, I think if your catheter is in the rectus sheath and there is no scarring or any... Um, abnormality to the anatomy there, the local anaesthetic should spread quite nicely. 
Um, so it probably doesn't matter too much as to where your catheter tip is as long as it's in. With respect to putting it in under ultrasound guidance, um, there are a few techniques described. I think probably the most common technique is an in-plane approach using a, uh, most of the time, a high-frequency linear probe. Um, and again, it's hard to describe this by um, podcasting. The best thing is to read the article and, and you'll get a better idea. But it's actually quite an uh, uh, easy block to do and quite satisfying as well. Yeah, now there's a, and there's a few um, um, videos that you can watch on YouTube or I'm sure like uh, Nysora, which is the, uh, a good uh, regional anesthesia sort of uh, resource, will have some teaching videos and things too. So I guess anyone out there who wants to learn, uh, that's the sort of way of doing it or getting someone who's experienced to show you. Uh, now, uh, so once you've got the catheters in and you're going to use them, there's a few different ways of, um, of using them afterwards uh, and uh, different ways of giving uh, the local anaesthetic. Do you want to, should we go through that as well? Sure. So once the catheters are in, um, we have to think about the volume of local anaesthetic yep. we're going to put in, uh, the concentration of local anaesthetic and how often we're going to do that or are we going to do that with a continuous infusion. And to cut to the chase and to look at the literature and get some answers on this, uh, there really isn't any. So um, we, we really have to sort of wait for that to come out. Uh, there are a few studies out there, but most of the studies are relatively poor quality. Uh, observational studies, uh, very few randomized control trials are different techniques. Uh, so the options essentially we have uh, are broadly put... Uh, providing manual bolusing, so essentially leaving the catheters and filters attached and every so often come around and squirt down some local anaesthetic. And uh, the typical frequency and doses that we would use for that would be a high volume, low dose of local anaesthetic, so something like 20 mils of 0.2% rapivacaine yep. um, or maybe 0.125% uh, bupivacaine or levobupivacaine and uh, down each side, so each catheter, and do that every six hours or so for a typical 70-kilogram patient. Um, there are advantages in that because we don't have to use pumps. Uh, the patient is free from being tied to any pumps, and if you're using pumps, you're going to need two pumps because there's two catheters, uh, though there is a caveat to that, which we'll cover. Um, so it does enable uh, mobilization, which I think is a really, really important thing to be... Um, encouraging after laparotomy, so there is a benefit there. If we're using pumps, um, then we can set the pumps to provide boluses. Now, the boluses in most pumps are over a much longer time. Um, so theoretically, one might think that might not provide as much spread. Uh, but again, the evidence really isn't out there to suggest that. And most hospitals that use pumps find they work quite well. And we can use elastomeric pumps, we can use electronic pumps, we can use pumps with continuous infusion, plus or minus a bolus. Um, and I guess the third way with pumps is to avoid having two pumps and use one pump, uh, which uh, infuses the local anaesthetic through what's called a Y connector. So this is where you attach the both of the rectus catheters to another... Uh, uh, the tubing, you mean? Yeah, the tubing. There is a technical term for the tubing, better. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've just had a stroke. Um, so we'll connect the, uh, the catheters to a, uh, a tubing that goes from two to one so it's like think of think of the capital letter y and it creates yeah. so so you can infuse via one pump into two catheters so uh matt traditionally i know in some institutions and certainly in the some of the hospitals i worked at in the past midnight midline laparotomies the gold standard which we tried to to do in a lot of patients was an epidural you know thoracic epidural um 
but there were, although they gave um, excellent pain relief, uh, they had a few downsides. And so um, certainly in our institution, we seem to have moved away from them a, a lot. And uh, do you want to talk about why that is? And you know, I think there's a lot, a lot of advantages for from for not using them now and using this um, rectus sheath catheter technique. Yeah, that's a really good question, Roger. And I think um, you know there's a lot to be said for a well-placed thoracic epidural, and um, there are benefits. Uh, and it's a recognised component of many enhanced recovery pathways around the world. Unfortunately, thoracic epidurals do come with some uh, side effects and some complications, some which can be quite significant. And I guess one of the major complications that can limit mobilisation after surgery is um, spinal, uh, uh, the sympathetic block and the yeah. hypotension, and potentially this may lead to more fluids being given and less mobilisation afterwards. Um, so that is one of the, the major problems, and I think at our institution and probably others around the world, that's been one of the reasons why yeah. we've moved away from these. Thoracic epidurals, however, do cover both visceral pain and also somatic pain, and that's a really important point to remember about rectus sheath catheters and any abdominal wall field block they're only going to look after your somatic pain so that's a skin incision pain and after any major surgery there is a component of visceral pain that's going to hang around for 24 to 48 hours so you do need to think about um, other pain modalities to um, get on top of that yep that's right and so certainly um, you know your comments about uh, hypotension and uh, sympathectomy are true. You know, I, I know I can still visualise the, the patients that have had these laparotomies in the past and they had the thoracic epidural will be sitting in bed that have an arterial line, their midoraminal infusion, and they'd be nice and comfy, but they'd be tied tied down in a bed with uh, with about five things attached to them. And uh, now sometimes you know you go up to the ward and on, the the patients who have had the rectal sheath catheters are on a general ward. They've got these two epidural catheters taped to the front of their abdomen there, uh, and they're walking around the room looking for the newspaper because um, they're not done not hypotensive, and, and they still have a little bit of discomfort, but they certainly can get up and do all the things they need to do. So it's just amazing the difference. Um, obviously, that's not all patients, but that's a significant number of them. So it's very impressive. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Roger. And I, I, I would say there is always a place, though, for a thoracic epidural. I think in some patients yeah. that is good. And, and we, we've looked after a few patients recently where we've used both techniques. So we've used the thoracic epidural um, for the very sort of early stage of their post-operative recovery, maybe just for 24 hours, and then transition to a rectal sheath catheter approach. So get the rectal sheath catheters in at the time of surgery and use the thoracic epidural for a relatively small period of time and then transition over to the um, rectus catheters. Yep, and that's a very neat little, uh, neat technique. Um, have a little bit of a talk about the possible complications or adverse effects, uh, if there are many. Yeah, sure, Roger. And uh, well, the good news is that when you look through the literature on this, there's actually very few adverse um, serious complications of rectal sheath catheters published. Uh, that's not to say they don't exist. So we could classify them into uh, complications due to placement of the needle in the catheter and also complications from the local anaesthetic itself. So starting with the local anaesthetic, we are using large quantities of local anaesthetic, so there's always a risk of local anaesthetic systemic toxicity, so we do need to be mindful of that. And uh, that might be because you put too much in the correct place and you've got absorption leading to symptoms, or it may be that your catheter has gone into a blood vessel or we've... Um, committed a wrong root drug error and we've just connected the local anaesthetic to uh, an IV line. So those are very uh, important things, obviously. In terms of complications from the placement, uh, our needle could damage any um, uh, organ or viscera within the abdominal 
um, wall and the peritoneum, um, and so that's relevant. And the catheter could be misplaced, and therefore it wouldn't cause, that wouldn't provide pain relief could go into a blood vessels we've discussed. Um, there's a few common things which sometimes we pick up uh, afterwards, and that can be leaking around the catheter, or even the catheter gets blocked, and we find that we can't actually get the local anaesthetic down there. And what I would suggest that if that is the case, um, just continue with the catheter that is still working, can still provide some good pain relief. Um, and just uh, thinking of a relatively recent complication that's been reported in the literature, uh, following surgical placement of a rectus sheath catheter, um, which worked very well after surgery. And when the nurses came to remove the catheters, uh, one came out uh, very easily, but the other one wouldn't come out. And it turned out that it had been sutured into place um, during closure of the abdominal wall. I think it's a pretty rare event, yes. um, but it's worth thinking about um, uh, how you mitigate against it. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe don't put lots of catheter in, um, but it hasn't been reported apart from that one time. And usually I think uh, you're trying to put the catheters in a bit more lateral to the incision, aren't you? So maybe perhaps without knowing the details, that might have been um, that might have been putting in pretty close to the midline, which is not norm- normally what you see. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. And um, when you think about the blood supply to the rectus sheath, um, it may come in more, well, it does come in more medially, and therefore there may be some um, some benefit to placing your catheters a little bit more laterally. Yep. And uh, it just reminds me, we haven't really talked about how long you can leave them in for as well. So, so you can leave them in for uh, three to five days, uh, depending on how uh, uh, how worried you are about infection and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And um, again, no sort of hard and fast rules about this. Um, but obviously you need to observe them on a daily basis, look for any signs of inflammation or infection. Um, but, you know, the uh, I guess when you compare the risks of a catheter within the epidural space versus a catheter within the rectus sheath, um, the potential risks are lower. Yep. The article that you've written you also has a link to a video that you uh, did know. Is that for how to place them surgically? What was that video? Yes, so uh, actually I should say thanks to uh, Lizzie Beattie for contributing to writing uh, this article in BJ Education. So there's, a, there's a, a few extra things in the appendices of this article that I was told when you tried you can actually get any of them to work, but I'll speak to the publishers about that. Yeah, there is a video on, um, on, on the ultrasound anatomy of the uh, yep. rectus muscle, um, and you can observe Lizzie's rectus uh, muscle, and there's a few pictures of mine. And uh, we've also got a, a video of how to place them surgically, which we haven't really covered in this podcast, but I think the easiest way of doing that would be to look at the video and hope that it works. Yeah, and so certainly if you work, uh, or if, if you are a surgeon or if you're an anaesthetist and you work with a surgeon who is regularly doing uh, midline laparotomies, that is pretty the way to go probably, isn't it, to, to, for, to get the surgeons to learn how to, to put them in. Uh, it's the m- sort of most time-efficient way of doing it. Is that right? It, it is, you know, and again, it's a common question I'm asked is, you know, what's best? And, and I think we'd always like to think that what we do is better than what the surgeons do. But unfortunately, as much as I look for the answers to this, I, I can't find um, any answers suggesting that that is the case. There are advantages and disadvantages. Clearly, there is... Um, it's going to be influenced by your own skills and also the skills of the surgeons. Uh, but I think it's a relatively easy thing for the surgeons to pick up. Uh, and I think we do have to remind them at the end of the operation when they've done most of the surgical side that this is actually an important thing to focus on because this is going to be important for the patient for the next few days. And sometimes uh, I think there is a bit of a, a dash to suture up the skin and start the next case. But this requires a little bit of um, 
um, just taking your time. Of course, you can put the rectus sheath catheters in open soon after incision. And right. uh, I think that's a really nice way of doing it. So uh, make the laparotomy, get the rectus sheath catheters in, and then start the surgery. And I think that ticks many boxes in terms of the surgeons being focused at the beginning of the case. And then you can also give the first dose of local anesthetic uh, early on as well. All right. Thanks, Matt. That's been a very um, comprehensive um, discussion. Obviously, the, uh, we, we can't teach you everything on a, on a podcast, so f- I really encourage people who are interested in this uh, or who feel they want to fill in some gaps um, to to uh, go to this article that um, Matt and Lizzie wrote, and uh, and also there's lots of other stuff out there if, if they need to. Um, so I'm going to get you back for some more podcasts, Matt. And um, also coming up, there is a uh, – I have um, – stolen some audio from your talk that you gave us uh, on cell salvage so to run out there we'll, we're going to get um, uh, Matt's talk on cell salvage that he gave to our department a few weeks ago thanks Matt thanks Roger thanks for listening everyone If you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, And also feel free to go to the website, uh, www.obsandgynocritcare.org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening.